Moto America fans, it's time for another episode of Off Track with Carruthers and Bice. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you may even learn something from this unlikely pair and their special guest. The mic is yours, Paul and Sean. Hello, everybody, Moto America fans. This is Paul Carruthers. I'm the communications manager of Moto America, and I'm joined as always on our weekly podcast, Off Track with Crothers and Vice by Sean Vice. Uh, we're separated by a couple of thousand miles, or maybe, I don't know how far it is. How far is it from Ohio to California, Sean? Jeez, I've never, I've never figured that out. And as the crow flies, it's shorter, of course, but I'm not a crow. So uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I've never made that trek. Um, you know, I know. Yeah, I was going to say you drive everywhere, but you don't actually not do that, that Laguna Seca drive. Right. Exactly. That's a little too far for me, but we're, we're quite a ways away, but at least we're, we're under the same moon or however that goes in uh, that song in Aladdin. You think, wouldn't think I'd know about Disney stuff, but I do. Yeah. That's a little (laughs) scary, but so anyway, we're off to pit race here next week. And we're, it's, it's funny because it seems like it's gone so quickly, but we're actually in that like last stage of the season there's what six races left, six superbike races left, and uh, and things of, of it's been interesting. It's 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 been a lot different. I'm, I'm working on the superbike preview now, and it's it's been a lot different than well than definitely than last year, where Jake Gagne just uh, reeled off all those wins. And I think I I looked and uh, leaving Pittsburgh, he won both races at pit race last year, leaving Pittsburgh. Last year, he had a 93-point lead in the championship. Uh, and now he trails by 13. So while that's good for our fans, it's not so good for our guest today. But for some reason, I have a feeling he's not overly concerned about things yet. Um, so why, why don't we just go ahead and, and bring Richard in, in now. Richard Stamboli is our guest today. Obviously, he owns Attack Performance. He runs the Yamaha team. Uh, the numbers are pretty impressive, Sean. I looked, he, since Richard took over the team, there's been 54 Moto America Superbike races, and that's 2020, 2021, and so far in 2022. And that team has won 42 of them, which is like wow. 77% of the races they've actually won. And that's including this year where they haven't been as dominant as they have in the past. Uh, Obviously, this year they've get, there's a bit of a new challenge in Ducati. Danilo Petrucci, you know, has has obviously shown that he's a MotoGP caliber rider and he has plenty of experience. He doesn't make very many mistakes, and and in turn, we've got a championship fight on our hands. So, let's uh, let's talk to Richard right now. Richard, uh, you're behind in the championship, which is unusual, but I get the feeling you're not that worried. It's 2,300 miles to Mid Ohio approximately oh there you go it, that, did you know that from memory or did you google yeah no i've driven it many times all right thank you since the, the mid 90s when we first started doing ama survive well i think sean should make the drive yeah <laughs> he probably yeah. wouldn't enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> but anyway um so back to your uh, what, uh your question um the way i view this season i think we've We've, we've made a lot of mistakes uh, and we've given away a lot of points. So there's been uh, effectively three race crashes, you know, the one at Road America, the one at Road Atlanta, and the one at, uh, at, uh, at Brainerd. So that's cost us over 50 points. Uh, we were leading two of them and the other one were kind of in the mix on the opening lap. So we could have possibly won that one. At, at worst, it might've been 20 points. Uh, we gave up, but he did finish somewhere, I think a fifth or sixth. So let's just say we're 60, we're 60 points negative on just that. And then we had one, one mechanical where we had a, a, a terminal that uh, had a bad, bad connection and then it caused a misfire at uh, Coda, which cost us another 25 points. So there's, there's our 75 or 80 some odd points that we've given up this season by ourselves, like with no pressure, you know, nobody forcing us to give up those points. It was just, we gave up those points. So that's where we're at. Uh, pretty confident we'll make those points back. 
before the end of the season. Jake has to keep doing what he's doing, minus the couple mistakes he made. And uh, we should be able to wrap this championship up. You know, it's going to go right to Barber for sure. Yeah, when I when I look at it, I mean, if if I'm Jake Gagne and if I'm you, um, they haven't proven yet that they can actually beat him. So that's correct. You you know, it, there there hasn't been a straight fight yet that he hasn't won. In fact, I don't know that he's ever been passed. Well, we got. I mean, in all honesty, we got beat at Coda. Well, that's true. Yes. You know, the first uh, the the first race we didn't get a chance to race. Jake set pole in the first set, the first qualifying session, I think. And then we had that fuel related failures in Q2, I think it was, where both bikes stopped. And uh, then our, our rhythm was basically blown at that point. And uh, they had chosen a different tire for the race for the longevity. And he just never got the feel for it all race long. So that's what happened in Coda, but he did get uh, a third versus a first or a second there. So he did get beat there. You know, there was a lot of circumstances there, but that was the case. You know, I, I know uh, the HSBK guys have had, you know, engine braking issues and this and that. So they can point to a lot of different things as to why he's not winning all of them also. So we did get beat in Coda. So that's been a straight up fight. Yeah, Richard, let's go right to this last, the last race of this last round. And I, I, one of the things that we appreciate about you is your, your candor on everything. Thing, uh, that you, you don't want to talk about the SBKC quite yet. Well, we'll definitely talk. We'll definitely talk about that. But I, I want to find out what happened to Jake in that crash. Did he make a mistake? Was it was it something in the track he didn't anticipate? And I'm so glad we are so glad that he didn't get injured after ragdolling down across that you know off the right. track there. Well, what what he, happened? Yeah, he's a pretty tough guy. I mean. We're happy he didn't uh, damage that one ankle. He just had, you know, the surgery on and over the winter because he had the screws removed, right, from his that that bad ankle break. And so, no, he's been feeling really good. He's really strong and and he's a really tough guy. Um, what happened? So uh, he said he was in there a little hotter than than the previous lap, and the data showed that. And there was, if you recall, there was quite a bit of wind on the racetrack, and that pushed him just enough offline. And if you look at the video, he had a little bit of head shake going in there. So the front had some movement. Actually, the combination of all those, the front having some movement where the tire didn't quite plant. He turned in and just tucked. Yeah, and it just, uh, it, the bike basically went straight. He never even made the corner. He didn't tuck like mid, it was really, really early. So I think it was the instability on the entry, which we'll look at maybe for the next race to calm that front down. Uh, you know, Jake doesn't mind riding a loose motorcycle and sometimes that might get you if the loose motorcycle is loose at the wrong time. You follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm glad you brought up that situation with the wind because I forgot that was the factor and you're absolutely right. I mean, just going outside at that time of the day from even when we were in the media center, it was crazy how gusty it had gotten. And it's one of those factors that, you know, you think about it with Phillip Island or whatever, and, and we have it in a fair number of our tracks, but how does, how do you contest, I guess, the wind is it just and i'm sure it's just not a matter of the riders leaning into it how do you account for that do you have to anticipate that it's going to move you over depending on which way the wind's blowing and, and work against that how, how does that even work well that's that's the issue right they're always trying to guess as to how strong the wind's going to be in that section if they're trying to do the perfect lap and uh, so most guys will just back off a tenth or two in a section where they're getting blown around. So if they do go offline, they can still make the corner. You know, but uh, Jake was uh, on that lap, on that entry, he was in as deep as he was on his fastest lap. So if you overlaid those two laps, he would, it was in as deep. If he, if you looked at it um, from the previous lap, he was in quite a bit deeper. I can't remember exactly how far it was. It was a number of meters deeper before he actually grabbed the brakes. And so you could. Uh, you could say he was maybe estimating the wind or the conditions were a little bit better than he thought going in there, and then it caught him off guard. When you see that bike doing to itself what it did, was there is there what's left of a bike after a crash like that? Uh, the wiring harness is okay. <laughs> it's only the back part. Right. Uh, the gas tank actually made it. It didn't touch the gas tank. It just got a little scrape on top. 
which I was wow. happy about because those things take us basically three or four days to build. You know, uh, they take longer to build a gas tank than an engine. You can build an engine in a couple of days, you know, and then a gas tank three, four, maybe a week, and then off the painter, you know. So we're happy about the tank. The front end was just like, you know, I, I was joking with, with John that uh, uh, you guys know what a trebuchet is? No. It's that catapult with that uh, it's yeah. kind of got a compound action. They oh, right. kind of do the yes. pumpkin launches with it, you know? Where things That's right. Harder. Yeah, so, so I, I said that, you know, the, the Byzantines, I think, were the first to have a trebuchet. I said, uh, I wonder if the patent ran out after that many hundreds of years that maybe I can re-patent the trebuchet. There you go. What? <laughs> you know, but I think launching Olin's forks and, you know, uh, Brembo brakes at someone may not be that cost-effective compared to a boulder. Yeah, that's what kind of hurts me the most is when I see those nice gold forks for some reason, when they're when they're flying and they're not attached to the motorcycle anymore, it tends to make you a little bit sad. Yeah, the impact was, was there was crazy amount of forces. It, it bent all the bolts in the linkage system in the rear. Wow. But our, our swing arm survived, it was only about two millimeters out. So that was that was good, but it bent all, it, it dented all the roller bearings inside the linkage from the inside out. That's how much force there was, like an airplane crash. The, wow. the, the forks themselves compressed like there was a bubble in the middle. Remember that that old saying, a muffin top, you know, when, when somebody wore pants, it was way too tight? Yeah. The, the, the forks looked like they had a muffin top. Oh, wow. Yeah, they That's compressed nice. so hard. I mean, it was just the forces were just incredible. And uh, it, it uh, yeah, it, it bashed both steering stops into the frame, compressing the whole steering neck, it pushed the steering neck back. I mean, it was just like, it was like I said, it was like a 747 crash. So I guess it's better for that to happen on Sunday than Saturday. No, it would be better if it happened never, but it'd be better <laughs> if it happened during practice. Never's not an option in this case. <laughs> yeah, never, yeah. never. Better, better in practice because we, we have another bike we could have rolled out, you know, but not right. in the race, especially a few laps from the end while leading. That's the most, that's the most, that's the hardest part. Now, I'm not trying to dwell on this, Richard, but a couple more things about this so what the forks did did they basically tear out of the triple clamps or did the head head tube break off no it, it broke the clamp right in the middle wow yeah so you can imagine the amount of like i said the amount of the clamps are made to take load in a certain direction uh that crash put all the load in a different direction like pulling I away see. from the motorcycle so pulling, it ripped the yeah. back part of the clamp straight open and then when that flexed open, it was like multiple jackhammer hits, right? So it broke the bottom clamp first, and then that swung around like a, like a trebuchet, like I said, and launched the thing as it broke the top part. So there's enough resistance to build up all the energy and then release. And so it was pretty incredible. That's why I think, I, think, I don't know how far it went. We didn't have a, you know, any sensor on the fork to tell us how high it went, but it looked like it was a good <laughs> 30 feet in the air. It was, and to look at it and wonder like, wow, where that could have gone, how it could have landed and whatever was crazy. The other part of that too was I immediately had deja vu. I'm sure you did too, but well, after that, when we saw one of the corner workers pick up the forks and wheel it around like he had a wheelbarrow or something. And I was yeah. like, well, where have we seen that before? Yeah. And it was it was, uh, it was Utah with with Josh Heron, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, that was, the fourth, that was the fourth year crash. He touched the curbing and it had been uh, a little damp that morning. It was a morning practice. And uh, yeah, it was right before the race and uh, yeah, it broke the bike in half. The thing went, uh, that one had the distance record. This one had the altitude record. <laughs> and that one went really, really far because I think he crashed about 90 or 100 miles an hour. That, that was a fourth gear left-hander, you know, at Utah. After you come through the, the right and then you go left and then you basically shift up and go through there, pretty good clip. And uh, yeah, he hit that, hit that curbing and lost the front and off she went tumbling down the road i don't know what it is about our bikes wanting to tumble yeah you know atlanta the thing beat itself to death too you know hit the curbing and tumbled end over end to smash the crap out of itself so it was just about a crash in atlanta that one didn't do it in the frame surprisingly enough or any of the components but it did the gas tank real good you know so everyone's got a little bit of extra cost somewhere it's crazy. And, and thank goodness you mentioned about your swing arm not getting too bad off. And I want to talk about that swing arm for a minute, Richard. Yeah. I don't think I mentioned this to you, but there is a there is a certain rider on a certain team that's quite close to uh, attack racing that that person badly covets that swing arm and thinks 
that if he had that swing arm on his motorcycle, it might be a little different. What have you, have you are you aware of that? And what's your response? I, I don't I don't know. You know, I, we'd have, he'd have to do a back-to-back test. I imagine he's the guy who's R-rated on your shelf. <laughs> right. Or is that PG 13? I can't remember. <laughs> oh no, I think it was full on R, actually. No yeah, that was it. <laughs> we can go and there. The F-word makes it R. <laughs> yeah. Oh, does it? Yeah. I, I don't know all, all, all these little, you know, rules of, of the trade. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I don't know. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. We have a couple of really good riders. And, and uh, I mean, our crew all together is just a really, really good crew and really calm. And, uh, you know, the riders are really calm, even in a situation like where Jake completely destroyed a bike and, and I mean, completely destroyed a bike and lost 25 points. There was no helmet throwing there was no crying. There was no yelling or screaming. It was just that, well, pick up the pieces, move forward, right? Do the best you can with what you have. And same with Cameron Peterson. I mean, everybody on this team has, uh, has, has been a crew chief pretty much, I think, except for Walker and Fernando, you know, so uh, Will, Lee, uh, Canfield, you know, Corndog, Marshall, all those guys have been crew chiefs. So they understand all the ups and downs of racing really, really well. And Walker's been involved in it for a really long time. And, and Fernando's probably the newest guy, but he's a super calm guy to start with. So there's, there's no real excitement. It, it keeps everything calm and it allows us to focus on the performance. And um, I think that that makes it look like, hey, our components are something special. You know, they, they have a suitor arm with a, with a suitor link and uh, they, they know the direction we've gone, so they could probably mimic what we have fairly close. I don't know if it's a, if it's a, uh, you know, the deciding factor. So unless you go test back to back, when we did develop that swing arm, we did it with Cameron Bobier, and we developed uh, a couple different. We had we had a couple different stiffnesses that we had prior with with Heron and with um, JD Beach. And so we kind of found a direction and then we got a, a swing arm from Yamaha Europe to test World, from World Superbike and it had a little better grip and, but it had quite a bit of movement for our Dunlop. So then we made something that uh, we thought would be the next best. Uh, I mean, uh, a little bit better as far as stiffness, less movement and added grip. And when Cameron Bobby hopped on, I was like, yeah, yeah that, that feels really good. It's got all the qualities of that without all the movement. And so uh, that's, that's where this swing arm originates. Uh, Cameron Bobier was just really good at putting something on and seeing it at the stopwatch. So there wasn't a, a guess as to if you made something better. It was, you could see it right on the stopwatch immediately. So if you made something better, you'd see it. So that was, that was good to help us along. And then of course, Jake's been able to take that and go one step further with the development of the bike with his feedback. Okay, this year the <clears throat> your your number one rival is the HSBK Ducati team and Petrucci. Yep. There's a lot of you know you can tell that that team they're working really hard. There's I like to call them like the guys in red pants, which are the Italians. Um, <laughs> they've got those guys over there. They're doing a lot of work. Petrucci doesn't make many mistakes. He's obviously a very quality rider. Mm-hmm. Is, is this? It, this is a challenge like no other for you, right? I mean, as far as what you're going up against? I mean, we've been, I don't know, like no other. That's, that might be a pretty dramatic statement. And we've done, we've done wildcard MotoGP if you want to see a challenge like no other. True. CRT, you know? yeah. Yeah, when we scored a couple of points with Steve Rapp, I mean, that was like a challenge like no other, you know? A lot of sleepless nights for those few wild cards we did. And, uh, and then we're going to be up against another huge challenge. We're going to go do Portimao at the end of the year. So it's, you know, we, I, I personally love the challenge. I, uh, Rick, Rick uh, Hobbs came up to me in 2020. He goes, how's it going? I said, honestly, Rick, this is a lagoon. I go, it's pretty boring. Mm-hmm. I go, we show up, we win, we smash everyone, we go home. I mean, it's just like, there's no competition. And I know that what, what happened in 2020 and, and it kind of carried over 2021, we, we had the COVID lockdowns and we kept working that whole time. And as soon as the track was available, we went and tested. So once Buttonwilla opened, you know, they said at one point, Buttonwilla said, screw it with the lockdown. 
we're going to open up and we're going to let you guys run around as long as you wear your mask when you're in the office or something, you know? And so we went and did that and we were able to get a head start on everybody else. And I think everybody else was kind of picking up the pieces and trying to figure out what direction they're going to go. And there was also a little bit of a shakeup with Yoshimura being gone and then M4 picking up the, uh, the Suzuki deal. And so I think we got a, we got a pretty good jump on everyone. And uh, then the next year, you know, it was fairly new for HSPK Dugati. So I knew those guys were going to struggle the whole year. Uh, so this year, I, they're kind of bringing it. I mean, it's not just HSBK, but it's, you know, Westby with, with Matt. You know, he was he led the championship at one point for a short amount of time. But he's been up front quite a bit, except Paul at Laguna. So, I mean, they have a lot of potential on that team. They just got to put all the pieces together at some point. You know, at some point, they're going to be, have to figure it out. But uh, I, I don't know that uh, this year is any the biggest challenge, but it's been a challenge. And I think the biggest challenge has been keeping our nose clean. Right. Now, BMW is starting to make an impact. Do you, do you think at some point they will become somebody to be reckoned with? I think so. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, PJ was right there, right? At race two. He was right on the heels of uh, Cam Peterson. And until, you know, they kind of spread out. But I heard they tested at New Jersey just a few days ago, and they were doing respectable lap times by what I heard, like mid-21s or something like that. I don't know if anybody wanted 20. But uh, that puts them right on pace, you know, race pace. I don't know if that was a one-shot lap uh, or if those were continuous laps. That makes a difference. Right. But a lot of times these guys could do that one flyer. Uh, like, for instance, at Laguna, you know, our bikes seem to do better on race tires and qualifying tires, maybe because our – grip or whatever you want to call it is right there maximizing what we have so when you put on a cue it's not that big a difference uh, our cues aren't really real cues they're just super soft race tires so they don't sometimes they just don't work you know they, they heat up they do this they do that they act differently on our bike than they might do on the Westby bike because obviously Skulls was able to hop on and and go super fast with that cue but it, it's also possible that our torque control is set for racing, meaning the amount of power we give the motorcycle. Mm -hmm. And when we hop on a queue, we need to actually add more power. So we haven't, we haven't figured out exactly what it is about those qualifying tires, but, uh, you know, so that I'm kind of, I'm kind of, you know, digressing a bit, but uh, I think, I think we have a good, pretty good race pace and those BMWs look like they're picking it up for sure. You know, I had a I had a question for you, which I'll ask you this next one, Richard, because it just popped in my head and I want to ask you about it. So you mentioned Matthew Skoltz at Laguna and he was on pole and it was, you know, by all accounts, seemed to be a pretty delightful moment for that team. And yeah. I actually went over and talked to him and I was like, hey, wow, you, you know, nice job. He had such a weird affect on his face. He was like, yeah, I don't have the, I don't have the race pace. And he, he didn't have any joy about getting on pole because he didn't think he could do it in the race. And that points out what you said about that one lap to go fast or trying to do it for a whole race. What happens when you deal with a rider like that, that like knows they don't have the, the race pace, but they're, they're quick on one lap. What, what's the deal there? How do you deal with that? Yeah, I've had that situation before um, where a rider comes in and, and puts in a good lap time and I go, oh, that's pretty good. You go, and they would say something like, well, that was all me. We still got a lot of work to do. You know, that was me sticking my neck out the whole lap, basically. I mean, we had that at, uh, I think it was uh, Road America when Steve Rapp was riding our super sport bike. And he looked at the lap time. He's like, man, how are we going to make up eight tenths? He goes, Road America. It's really like four tenths. We go keep chipping away at it. And we did. And before we knew it, we were like within a tenth of pole. Or we were, uh, I think at some point we were on pole as well. And so it's just, it just keep chipping away at it. You, you got to look at every little sector of the racetrack, figure out what the rider's doing, try to put it in their head that they change this little thing, that little thing, that, that's how much it's worth. You can quantify where the time is. It's a lot easier for a rider to absorb that. We've done that with Cam Peterson this year by showing him exactly where he's, where his deficit is to Gagne. And he, his pace has come up quite a bit. He's been within a, I think at Laguna, he was he was even P1 uh, part of a session, and it took Gagne a bit to get past him. And qualifying, I think he was that way. And and uh, we put on the queue, and then Gagne went a little faster, and we didn't go any faster. And so 
he's 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 right on the edge of that. Uh, and what what takes it isn't looking at the big picture and being defeatist. It's where we're going to find that time for us. We have the luxury of two riders, mm -hmm. and one rider's super fast, and the other guy's up and coming. So it's really easy to overlay their traces and go, look, you didn't open the throttle the same right here. That was worth 10. You didn't break this way. You know, you're not picking the bike up on the fat of the tire or whatever the case may be. Your, your line's a little bit wrong in this area. And so you work on those things and then they can do that laptop. And if they can combine some of the other good traits they have, um, then they, they might go even better. You know, this is the other part of that, Richard, I want to ask you about. So you've been doing this long enough that uh, certainly there was a time when we didn't have, you didn't have access to the data and the truths that you have now. And of course, riders will be riders. And in the past, you'd see riders who would, I don't know if they would stretch the truth or outright not tell the truth, but sometimes they would say certain things that they couldn't be disproven or proven with data and you would have to maybe kind of take their word for it a little more than you do now um is it changed is it a matter of these guys don't make stuff up as much as they used to because they can be proven either right or wrong or is it is it always been the same what what's the evolution there well okay there's we've had data on bikes since don canay rode our bike to daytona in 1993 so before that uh, we had, you know, carbureted bikes and things of that nature, you know, YZF 750 with flat slides. And so it's, it was definitely a little more challenging to figure out what the rider is saying, but we didn't have that many options either. We had the linkage, we had the triple clamps with a couple of different offsets. We didn't have much as far as rate change goes. So, uh, fast forward in modern times, the, uh, the data is still driven by the rider. So if you look at the data and, and you say, hey, you're only using 80 millimeters of stroke, why is that? Well, it's because the rider puts it there. That's where he's comfortable in the middle of the corner. So if you look at every single corner, if you look at Jake Garnier's data, suspension-wise, let's say, uh, not rider technique, like opening the throttle and then a lean angle, on most things which are a big help, but let's say uh, suspension data, one of the hardest ones to look at, uh, because they always look the same. And, and you go, well, why is Jake using the same stroke with that spring and versus Cameron's using, this, uh, you know, with a different spring and the front end geometry is different, but they're both using the same amount of stroke. That's where they get comfortable putting the bike's geometry in the middle of the corner or on, on the brakes. So then if you go and you affect that, the geometry might still look the same, but they go faster or slower. You know, the one, one example was um, at Road America, Cameron Bobier. Uh, we tried something on the front end to get it to go over the bumps in the entry of five. There's some seam over there and it upset the rear of the bike. I mean, we didn't have to do anything. He was already two seconds faster than anybody else, you know, but we're challenging ourselves, right? Let's go to the, get over those bumps better. So we softened the front end and uh, Cameron comes in and goes, the brakes aren't working that good. And I go, what do you mean the brakes? It's the same pads you just rolled out on. It was like mid-session. He goes, no, this bike's not stopping. And then we look at the data and he's using the same stroke in the front with less brake pressure. That's because the front end was softer. He had to brake a little earlier. And if he broke any deeper, he felt like he couldn't stop. He couldn't pull the lever as hard to get it to get in that corner. And uh, so go back on the springs. Yeah, brakes are fixed. So sometimes those little things that a rider does naturally, like I pull the lever so hard to get to that one position that I'm comfortable with breaking in the corner and the bike keeps running on. Why is that? Well, it's because maybe your fork springs aren't there proper or you know, damping isn't right. So the data is it's just another tool. It really helps on the rider uh, part of it though, like how you, uh, the lean angle sensor and the, where you use the brake force and how you taper off the brake force and brake force to throttle that application, like where you let off the throttle, I call it coast time. Cameron Bobier was excellent on the coast time. He'd have the lever, uh, he'd be on the brakes and he'd almost overlap the throttle open. Could be opening the throttle at the same time as releasing the brake, so that it the the front end was always planted. He had a really, really good feel for the momentum of the motorcycle, and uh, so those are the things you can you can use the data very effectively on the suspension stuff. Not so much. You, can, you have to kind of talk with the top of the rider quite a bit, figure out where he's at, so you can match that with what the data says. 
You know, Richard, this is for the fans listening, and I'm sure a lot yeah. of the fans know this, but to look back and think about the writers that you've worked with, and I'm going to, in no particular order, and not just from my own offhand memory, mention a few of them, and I'm just going to give you, give a list for everybody to know. I mean, it's it's Ben Spees, Josh Hayes, uh, Steve Rapp, um, uh, Chaz Davis, uh, Cameron Bobier, Blake Young, um, obviously Cam Peterson, um, oh, yeah. Josh Henry. What's that? Tom Tom Kip, still one of my favorite writers of all time, by the way. Uh, Jason Fridmore. Yes. Sorry, Jason. I helped you out. Yeah, Richie Alexander. Richie Alexander. All of the writers you've worked with. And are there any are there any writers that you can say those two writers really wrote kind of similar? Or is every writer pretty different in, in their own unique way? Gosh, they're all been a little bit different, to be perfectly honest with you. Chaz was really, uh, really uh, methodical about his writing. Like he used all the racetrack, did everything just right. But when he rode our bike, wasn't super aggressive. But then when he got in the world scene, all of a sudden the switch went off in his head at one point and he was like super aggressive. You know, so, uh, oh, and then there's, you know, uh, one of the funnest writers I've worked with was um, uh, Leandro Mercado, who's in the world throwback currently. You know, mm-hmm. he, he wrote, when he was a kid, he was just like, uh, Fun, really fun to watch. The whole Cowie team would go there and watch him race, even though he was in the, the kids' class. And uh, so, but there, every rider's had their pluses and minuses. And and obviously, Ben Spees went on to be a world champion, and uh, Pridmore is a world champion in endurance, and he won a bunch of championships here. We're lucky to have him for a championship here. You know, Josh Hayes won his first championship with us here. Uh, Josh was more of a, I call a step function rider. He would make a step forward, and he would never go backwards. He'd, He'd make another step forward. He, he would never go backwards. Every session, he made a step forward. He, he really liked looking at the data and, and trying to understand the writing and all that stuff. So, and then, you know, Pridmore was like, uh, I don't want to look at the data. This is what the bike's doing, figure it out. You know, and if we got stuck at the time, he would try to help us with what he was feeling and things of that nature. For the most part, he'd come in, tell us what's up, and that was it. So every, every rider's got a little bit of different different thing going on, some more passionate than others. Uh, but they're all, when they put their helmet down, they're all kind of animals, you know, at least successful ones. I want to talk about this world Superbike thing we've got going here. It's, yeah. uh, we're all, we're all pretty excited about it, obviously. And I think you are as well. Yeah. How, how big is that challenge? Like how much, let, let's talk a little bit about the bike, like how much work has to be done to the bike or th- what has to be different What's it going to take to get that bike ready to go over there and, and compete? Well, we could pretty much run the bike as is. Uh-huh. Uh, we could even run the fuel we have uh, and just show up. But why would we do that? You know, we're just going to come up with a Motor America bike. So the other options are that we could put in a transmission. We're still waiting on Europe to tell us what their ideal choice is for there because they they get to choose a particular transmission for the whole season. So I don't know if their transmission even works well at Porter Mountain. Imagine it does. Top Rack won there uh, a couple times last year, I think. And so they're all on vacation in Italy, so we can't really get any info. It might be kind of late. So we have the option of doing the transmission, and the other option is uh, the, the, the drum that locks neutral out past first gear. Uh, so it's neutral, then, then uh, six down, basically. So neutral will be all the way up. And uh, then you got a lockout pin that keeps it from rotating into that. So you're never ever going to get to neutral on the racetrack unless you get between gears. So that that's kind of a safety thing. We could do that. Then uh, we ordered up some some fuel that uh, is used by them over there, and we're going to go out and do a two day test on the Pirellis with the fuel to see how our engines like it. Lean on the engines a little bit more. That we know that this fuel can't take, as we learned at Coda. And uh, so we'll, we'll put a little more poop in the engine and then we'll uh, work on, on the tires for a couple of days here locally. Uh, Pirelli's supporting us with some rubber there. And um, then there's also an optional shock that we were able to get uh, that's, that they wouldn't allow in Motor America, right? even though they were, it was in the, um, you know, we, I think we went over this at one point. The shock was available on the buy sheet, but some politics went down and Owens didn't want to sell it here or, or as a Motor America said, so we can just scratch it off the list. So anyway, we have the option of using that shock as well. And we have the option of using maybe a little bit better brake caliper. So those are some of the things that we could do. But for the most part, we can just put our bikes in a crate and go. 
But you know how we are. We're not going to put our bikes in the crate. We're going to try and push all the way to the end to get the best possible combo for Jake. I think it's a huge advantage. And I think that's sometimes the issue when we send somebody over there in years past. I, I think it's a big deal that, that Jake gets to go with you guys in his bike. No matter what it, how it changes, what tires he's using, whatever, I think there's still something to be said for that familiarity with both the team and the bike. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, I think Pridmore was talking about that, Greg and Greg White and Pridmore on their on their podcast, you know, Greg's Garage, they were talking about, uh, I heard a, a part of it, um, they were talking about how much of an advantage it is to be so familiar with the motorcycle as soon as you roll out on the racetrack. And this is why also we want to spend a couple of days on the Pirellis, get a feel for that front tire. That track is really demanding on the front tire. And so get a feel for that front tire. Uh, anyone can open the throttle and, and, and tell you if you have grip or no grip in the rear, any pro rider. But that the feel in the front, I think, is super important. So we'll spend a couple of days on those tires. And uh, yeah, I think we show up. The only thing that's going to be different is which direction the track is pointed, you know. And uh, Jake's been there before and, and away he goes. The difference with the front tire, and I haven't had a chance to really talk to guys about that because our series is obviously a Dunlop only series anyway. So there's not a lot of point in talking about it, but what, what is it, is the main, is it a grip issue? Is it a profile? Is it side edge? I mean, do you know what the difference is that the rider feels between the two? I know when, when Pirelli introduced the 125 in 2019, we did that wild card with, with JD. And as soon as he put on that front tire, as soon as we tried it at Buttonwillow, uh, he said, wow, that front tire is really good. So even JD was never a really hard front tire user. So he noticed the difference. I'd like to see what, what Jake says when we get a chance to get on. And that was 2019. So the compounds, with Pirelli, they call it an SC1. But there's a compound change just about every year of what they consider an SC1. So it'd be interesting to see what, what the reaction is. Um, here. Uh, we did get a chance to play with it a little bit at Daytona and it was all positives. Uh, Cameron Peterson uh, rode that, those Pirellis and they had that 125 front, the World Superbike front. We opted to use that instead of the 120. And he really liked it. Uh, you know, Jake didn't get a chance to run the race, but we did test for a few laps with it. And he said he really didn't, if, he, if we didn't tell him they were they weren't, if they, we didn't tell them they were Pirellis, you wouldn't know the difference, put it that way. So I think there's a little bit more, more push involved, but yeah, just to answer your question, it is the, the amount of grip and the profile, make, the profile makes it, and how the carcass flex makes a huge difference on the rider feel. I remember uh, the Bridgestone engineer at one of the CRT deals we did in you know, GP, saying all of our front tires will do the same lap time. It depends on what the rider wants. Right. So, so that's the important part is getting a good feel for the thing to know how hard you could push at what lean angle you can push, you know, how hard you can break at a particular lean angle. The Bridgestones were notorious for breaking really hard at high lean angles where the Dunlops are more of a straight up breaking and then taper off. So the Pirellis I think are somewhere in between. I know that Dunlop introduced another tire at Brainerd, which we, I think just about every team put it on for about three or four laps and said, no, nah, we're not ready for it. And that was the same thing with us. It had a Japanese carcass and Japanese profile. And I think that thing there might be good at Pittsburgh, possibly. I think it'll, if you could put load on it, I think Brainerd was the wrong track to introduce it to because the carcass was so stiff that I don't think it covered any of those bumps. Brainerd is so beat up by all the winter weather they get there that uh, the tracks had a lot of sharp edge bumps. And I think that tire just couldn't soak it up. Where the Dunlop seem to do, uh, like the standard Dunlop seems to go over those bumps pretty good. Um, so that's that's those are the things that are, that a rider can sense in the front tire, and that's why it's so important for us to test. Yeah, I always wonder if uh, I always wonder if it's harder to take a guy that's used to less grip and giving him more, or vice versa. But I guess it probably depends on the guy. I guess more grip's always better, but sometimes you see where it's not. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say probably to give somebody less grip is probably easier than give somebody more grip and them trying to learn how to ride it. Because that was like the, the big thing, if you remember way back when guys would go from Superbike to MotoGP, they're like, man, it's going to take me a season to get used to those Bridgestones. I mean, 
you know, the amount, how hard you can break at full lean angle and when you can open the throttle at full lean angle, all that stuff. Remember when Blake Young rode the thing, he didn't feel comfortable on it at all until like the last lap of the race at Coda when the thing started moving around like a Dunlop. Right. You know, he didn't know when to open the throttle. And that's huge time on a, on a MotoGP bike, opening the throttle at full lean. And uh, something that Jake's gotten really good at on our bike is opening the throttle high lean angles and being able to pick the bike up and go. I think that's where a lot of his lap time comes from. So anyway, um, yeah, I think the uh, giving somebody less grip, they, they know, oh, hey, this thing doesn't have as much grip, so I can back off just a little bit versus, hey, push harder. My brain tells me not to, you know? So I think it's easier to go with, like Petrucci's shown that, right? He can, uh, come off of MotoGP where there's ridiculous grip on the front tire to our tires where there's definitely not as much. And he's been struggling with the front feel, but he's not been putting it on the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he had one crash during the race and he was lucky they red flagged it. Okay, so it's becoming the point in the podcast where I need to open a can. I'm going to open a can of worms. And Rich, you know, you always do this to me and then you go, I hope we don't get fired. <laughs> no, it's all good. I, I'm, yeah, I, like I said, I'm opening the can of worms. You can open the can of whoop ass. Sure, but I got a little preamble about this. Um, earlier this week, Richard, I wrote a story and it was inspired by you. You, you probably didn't Uh-oh. see it because it wasn't about Superbike. But, you know, one of the things with, with motorcycles, and I think you're the same way, um, is I just stare at them all the time. And sometimes I say, geez, I don't even have to ride them to love those things. You just look at them and you look at their way they're put together. And I did a, I do a fair amount of that at the paddock. I stand and stare at your bikes. I look at, I look at the Ducati. I spent some time looking at uh, Harley Davidson's uh, baggers bikes and was kind of mar- marveled by a couple things in, on it. You One had of them, to go there, didn't you? Well, yeah. And I'm, watch where I go with this. Watch where I go. Okay. All right. Richard, Richard, that swing arm on there i was amazed and talked to the engineers about how it's got webbing it's lightened but it's it's kind of form follows function and not isn't kind of it is form follows function they've got a chain tensioner on it they've got a lot of trick parts on it to make that that bike do what they're trying to get it to do and i i put the story out under this idea of tech tuesday and talked about all this stuff and our social media that supported it all anybody wanted to say in comments was you know about what happened to kyle during uh, our weekend at, at uh, Brainerd. So right. let's, let's talk about some things a little bit. And I, I know that particular brand of motorcycle has a reputation, always has, and it's a joke about the fact that fluids come out of it. Well, yeah. you can solve that problem, I think, and other motorcycles have that happen sometimes, but I don't know, like, what, <laughs> what is the deal? Like, why did all of the good thoughts about that bike go out the window in that whole thing? Give us what your take is. Uh, well, I mean, in every motorcycle racing rule book, it tells you to take the blinkers off, take the reflectors off, take the taillight and headlight off. Our rule seems to say, add some bags to it. <laughs> so I just don't understand the rules altogether. But with that said, you know, that's me. That's my opinion. Uh, a bike should not leak oil on the racetrack, period. I don't care how you have to stop it. If you got to put JD weld in every crevice there is. A motorcycle should not leak oil on the racetrack and cause others to crash. Now, if you, if you look at uh, the entirety of the series, a whole year, I can't think of a single metric bike. And I, I'm not against domestic motorcycles whatsoever. I wish they would build a proper race bike. Uh, the... I don't remember any metric motorcycle oiling the whole racetrack where we had to shut down for hours. So you guys maybe can correct me, but I don't remember that at all. But now it's happened three times where it's been hour delay, half hour delay, half a day delay at at Atlanta. I mean, uh, Road America in the wet of all places, two motorcycles. So if I was building those motorcycles, I would go and test. And I would go to a racetrack and test and try to figure out where the weaknesses were and go, okay, we can't have any oil leaks. Mm-hmm. So, and then I look at the, the rules and I look at what they consider a belly pan and it's a little tray that, that you can buy at Home Depot, you know, to hold your nuts and bolts, a little flat tray. That's where they got kind of bolted the bottom of the thing. So it's not a proper enclosure. Remember the VR1000 when they had a proper enclosure underneath the bike? to catch yes. the type of fluids. That's the other thing too, is they're gone really light because they're going for the look. 
on that on that uh, on the belly pan rule, in my opinion. You know, so they need to have a proper enclosure thing if they do have a fluid leak. And yes, yeah, they did have that joke where if 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 a Harley quit leaking oil, then you know that you know you need to add some of the engine. You know, so you think by 2022 they'd figure out how to not make that happen. I hear that those things are revving twice as high as they're supposed to, and they're making a bunch of power and all that. Well, Harley's got a lot of money. You know, they're putting a lot of money behind it. They should, and, and Indian as well. They should go out and test some racetracks and make sure their engines are not going to do what they do when they show up for the nationals. Yeah, and you know, I, this has not happened as much. Certainly, it's happened in that class. I know we've had a little bit of it. Um, with Twins Cup and the situation, you know, I think you could say baggers is a tuners class. Certainly uh, Twins Cup is, and they're trying to get maximum out of those bikes. And I've even talked to some of the teams, Yamaha or Aprilia, and they're, they're just trying to, they're almost getting, you know, they're, you're going beyond what they should be. And it's hard to keep the engines clamped together a little bit. And they have had some failures in that class as well. And I think that's the case with baggers. Like you're saying, they're actually, pushing them beyond what the engineering is what, what this decided it should be. Would you say that's accurate? Um, yeah. I mean, they're, they're pushing them for sure. Uh, again, I mean, that's where you got to go test, right? The dyno doesn't tell you everything. You have to go to racetrack and test. I don't know how often those bikes get on a racetrack and, uh, and get thoroughly run. Versus showing up the nationals. I mean, there was like six or seven of them, right? Or maybe eight. And every now and then, I think there might be six or seven that are, that are in for the whole season. And maybe, I don't know how many else pop up at this national, that national. So I think I think for as much money as they put in those things, I'm just really shocked that they don't go out and ride those things at other racetracks. So what do you think of this concept, Richard? I always, when I worked at Yamaha, I, you know, Yamaha had the, the, the Viragos and the V stars and the star motorcycles. And they were never really my cup of tea. I've always been more towards sport bikes, but I always felt like, Hey, if people like those and people want to buy those bikes, then, you know, have at it because that adds money to hopefully put into, you know, development of more sport bikes. Same thing with Moto America. Obviously we've got our other classes to bring other uh, fans in to watch our racing and King of the Baggers has been inarguably very popular. So it, I think it has helped us with our ticket sales for sure. What do you think of that part of it from a grand scale that if, if we can get more fans to come in for that and, and also watch Superbike, it's going to kind of rise all boats, so to speak. Mm, I don't know. That's a fad. It'll come and go like super motard. That's what I think. You know, we don't see the national motard races being televised. We don't, we don't see anything but really super bike on pressure to rise on your show. Right. And so that's got to tell you something. Yeah. There might be the, the niche crowd that shows up at a few nationals like Wisconsin, Harley Davidson city, you know, and, um, there's, you're going to get some additional fans there. I, eventually, the, do people want to come out and watch the baggers run around for uh, drive out to a racetrack just to see that? Yes, for sure. There was there was a, a number of people that showed up in Wisconsin in uh, 21 that were there for the baggers that saw us racing and they were like, "Wow, this is the first time I've been to a road race and and this is pretty amazing." So for sure there was that that group. I don't I don't know how to quantify what that group is or how large that group was. I imagine it was okay size. I don't know how that turns into TV ratings and and people clicking on and and buying Motor America subscriptions to watch all the live action. I don't know. You know, but to me it seems like just not a fad. It's going to come and go. Just like we've tried this before. We had. Pro Thunder, we had Battle of the Twins, we had the XR class, we had Super Motard, we had all these things come and go. They're two, three year niche. But Superbike's been here since they switched from two strokes to four strokes, and it's been here ever since. And all the other classes are always in some type of form of change, like Super Stock, Super Sport, you know, uh, Daytona Sport Bike, you name it. Super Sport's now the kids class, and now the Super Sport's really Daytona Sport Bike. Oh, wait a second, it's super sport again. Nope, it's 600 super stock. No, it's 750 super stock. 
I mean, it just keeps changing, but there's always been a Superbike and there's always been Grand Prix. Well, you you actually led me right into this next question, Richard, and it's like you you competed at Daytona in the Daytona 200 this year, and you did well with your team. Um, obviously, it's unfortunate that Jake got hurt, but Cam Peterson was out there and did well too. And the, the bikes were fantastic; they were fast, and we know you know how to develop a middleweight motor. Yeah, we led almost every lap of the last one. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, last round, um, we had 16 bikes in super sport. I think we were back up to maybe 29 or 24. I can't remember the exact number for pit, pit race. And it should be that way. Um, but you know, obviously the 600 CC or whatever we're calling it, it's, it's, it's middleweight. I mean, we know what's going on with Josh Aaron and with this, the GSXR 750s. that class of motorcycle is in a weird situation right now. It's in flux because the manufacturers aren't supporting 600 CC motorcycles. Do you think that Supersport is going to continue or does it, you mentioned it's kind of all about Superbike to you, but since you had, have involvement in Supersport, you know, can you comment on, on that class of motorcycles? I was really talking about the stability of the class where Superbike's mm -hmm. always been Superbike, except for when the DMG guys took over and they tried to kill the sport in the U.S. They made, right. they got rid of Superbike, they bought in Daytona Sportbike and then they made Superbike Superstock. And those were the worst years of racing ever. Yep. in the United States. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. And uh, I remember sitting in a meeting at Kawasaki and uh, finally getting a call from the, the gentleman that ran Kawasaki Racing Worldwide. And, he, and his, his comment to me was, sorry, Richard, DMG no good. I, you know, translated from broken English to broken English. You know, so he didn't talk about the economy and all this other stuff. He mentioned that that series is no good. They're not going to support it. And they took all their money and went dirt bike racing. So that's the way that went down. So if, if you want to keep messing with the sport, messing with the sport, messing with the sport, you can end up with that kind of result. Now, with that said, the um, yes, the manufacturers kind of started weaning off making 600s. You know, Yamaha was on limited production with the R6. I think they might bring out some more limited production stuff next year. I'm not 100% sure on that, but you know, maybe a race only package, uh, like they did kind of this year, what we've been building for customers. And, um, so they, they're doing that. Um, the bike obviously is still competitive. You saw that, uh, at, uh, at BIR, right. Right. At Brainerd. I mean, one by 11 seconds, Rocco. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know if Rocco was just racing a couple guys that don't, don't want to stick their neck out because they're older and, you know, have families and things like that. You know, Josh Hayes and Josh Heron. But Rocco was gone. He had nothing to lose. And he was, you know, and that 600 went. So I've been saying that since Daytona. Uh, our bike was competitive at Daytona. I don't think the R6 is, is not competitive. Uh, I don't think the rules are that far off. I think the, the Suzuki's have a bit of an advantage on power. They just happen, happen to have a couple of kids riding. And if they had some, some, you know, seasoned riders riding those bikes, I think they'd probably win that one. So I think the Suzuki's got an advantage, which they haven't been able to fix yet, um, or may not, may not fix because of, you know, political pressures. And um, the, uh, the, I think the Ducati and the R6 are pretty well paired. You got to look at the experience of, of the guy riding the Ducati. You know, he was a Superbike champ. He's a Superstock champ. Yeah, he's, he's, he rode 600s for, since he was a kid. So the experience level is super high. And that's why the Ducati seems like it's got such an advantage. But I don't think, I don't think it's that bad. Like I, I, I've been saying that since day one. And I, I do think that uh, all, all the guys riding the 600s, with the exception of uh, the uh, you know, Vision, Wheels, whatever team, M4, I can't remember the whole name. Um, I think that they have a much more experienced crew. Um, but other than that and HSBK, Everybody else is basically a pickup truck show, right? You know, right. So, uh, you know, motorhomes and, and, and uh, you know, toy haulers. So, not really the level that we used to have in Supersport, which is unfortunate because I think it's a good breeding ground for potential Superbike racers. Okay, I'm going to jump back to Daytona one more time and then we yeah. can get this uh, wrapped up. Now, you went down to Daytona, you did well. 
you, I think you had a good experience. I went down there very, I, I wouldn't say pessimistic, but I was a, a little bit cautious because like you, the last time, the last times that I was down there, things weren't good. It was, it was the previous people running the series and Daytona was just one of those places where sometimes you just left shaking your head and, and, yeah. and not full of uh, happiness and joy. This year I went down there. I had a good time. I thought the racing was good. I thought the program was good. I liked the, I thought the super sport worked out well with the rules that we had. And I think that it's got some legs and we could turn that into a pretty cool once a year uh, race. What, it, did, do you feel the same way? I mean, is that something you'd like to do again and like to continue with? I mean, I'll be straight up with you. The officiation of the thing was, was awful. You know, the, the, uh, the organization and, and the way it was run was just awful. But the race was great. So I don't know how to take it. I mean, we, it was like we were doing a race for the first time ever, which I guess we kind of were. Right. But it was, there was just the sense of planning wasn't there. I don't know if it was, the, it was, it was like Motor America had done their first round in 2015 or whenever they started. You know, so I didn't understand why that happened the way it did. But at the end, it all shook out and we had a really great race. So if you look at the, the actual, how the racing went down, I mean, our, our customers and fans were ecstatic. They didn't see any behind the scenes nonsense that went on. Right. You know, with when to pick pit spots and, you know, where is this happening and timely dissemination of information and the schedule changes that weren't out. The TV guys knew about it before the teams did. You had to ask the TV guys about what the schedule was when the rain came. You know, there was a lot of things thrown at Motor America, but they didn't handle it very well. So just to be perfectly honest with you, I think they would say the same thing about their own. I mean, if you had to rate how the how that went down, timing and scoring went down regularly during our session. You know, only during our session for some strange reason. So and then there was a joke like they're just trying to cover up the times because the body's that fast or something. Somewhere, which it wasn't true. You know, I mean, Cameron uh, Peterson went out and got P1 in one of the sections. I go, I don't think that's right. And, you know, it was only like the second time ever seeing the racetrack in the first session. He was the second session, he was P1. And I said, how could that be right? I mean, he barely did a lap on the motorcycle. And I go, I don't know. And then we had to wait for the official results to show up because we didn't have any idea. I couldn't put a stopwatch on 30 guys. So that part of it was awful. The, the rest of it was great. The racing itself was good. You know, it went smooth. Uh, obviously, it would have been nice to have Jake race, but, you know, we, we were at, at the front most of the race and uh, it went down to the wire, which is the way it should be at Daytona. All right. Well, look, um, since poor Sean has probably lost his job with the Harley question, <laughs> and now I'm bordering on losing mine with the yeah, right. question. Come on. You know, you know that you know that me and Motor America have a love-hate relationship. Oh yeah. That's why we wanted <laughs> yeah, to have but, you. But I'm probably one of the biggest advocates of Motor America racing you could find. I agree. I agree too. There's I there's no doubt. And and we know how you feel about that. And we know we meant, you know, we talked to before, and I want to mention this. You guys have something that the fans don't even know about, but you guys have taken it upon yourselves to get together and have this superbike council where the teams talk about the future and, you know, kind of talk about amongst yourselves about what the future of the sport and what's going on. And, and so that you can, you know, react intelligently and in as a group united front with Moto America. So I, I think that's a great accomplishment. And that yeah, speaks I, to I, that. Yeah. I wouldn't consider a front. A front sounds like something you do in war. Uh, You're right. You know, when we organized the thing, you know, I, I kept telling uh, Chuck Chiquetto and myself, where I just go, I don't know why we don't have an IRDA. I don't know why we don't have a writer's group. I don't know why we don't have a writer's committee. I don't know why we don't have a rules committee. I mean, all these things happen in, in other sports, maybe not BSD, because that thing's kind of run like a dictatorship. But the, uh, in, in MotoGP and World Superbike, there's the MSMA. I mean, there's so many different groups that influence the direction where those guys can get some counsels we call all this group you know and, and get an idea like for instance we had just had a ruling or just had a vote on getting a little closer parity to world superbike and now it's every premier team we put it out there along with the rules and bsb and world superbike which are very similar with regards to transmissions and we had a vote and the vote was two to one basically 
for more parity of the world superbike. Mm. So, and then we presented that to Motor America, what they do with it. I don't know what they're going to do with it. Hopefully, they'll 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 go the direction that the majority of the of the um, competitors want. But the main reason wasn't to put up a front. The main reason was to work together to make the sport a little bit better, and superbike racing in particular better, because I think that's the linchpin of this of this particular sport here in the U.S. Everything else is is, is a sideshow, second 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 tier deal. Superbike is it. And so how do we make that better? And we had some ideas. Uh, I presented, you know, like we pool all of our rooms and try to cut some of the travel expense, try to get one agent to get them all at a discount. You know, let's say we, get, we order 100 rooms instead of 10 here, 10 there, 10 there. We could, we could lean on the hotels to get maybe a 40% discount. And that'll be a big savings. And then maybe change some of the rules to where we buy tires every single weekend. I said, why don't we go, from, instead of going from 16, let's go down to 12 tires. And that'll save people up to four tires per weekend per rider uh, across all the races for a season or two. That's a, that's a pretty decent savings and we can make that work by using a, a used set of tires in the morning warmup, let's say, where this really doesn't matter what the lap time is anyway. And uh, so all those things we kind of try to put together as a positive, not necessarily to combat uh, what Motor America is doing. The, the thing that I saw too was that the loudest voice in the room got Chuck Axland's ear, right? Like uh, yeah. Steve Scheibe or uh, uh, John Ulrich or whoever else wants to call him and yell at him regularly or discuss whatever they discuss, you know? So those guys got, made it seem like that was the majority opinion, but it wasn't. So it came down to vote. The majority of the opinion was a lot closer to what Chuck J. Kettle and myself think with regards to the direction of sport. And we presented that to Motor America along with exactly who voted for what. It was right there as transparent as can be. And along with our opinion of why it should go that way as a group. And uh, we'll see where it goes, you know, but that's, that's the idea behind that group to help each other and maybe help Motor America make the, make that class a bit better. Yeah. And I mean, that's a good, that's a good example of what it is supposed to be. I said front and didn't really mean to say that it's more like a unified kind of, you know, you got, you're right. It's not just one loud voice. It, it's everybody gets together and this is what we've decided as a group that would work for all of us. And you present it that way. And it's, it's definitely a, a more organized and clear way to do it. So I love the idea about the hotel rooms and stuff. Um, that's cool. Plus we'll let the fans know where you guys are staying and we'll just have them come in and just go nuts with all the yeah. teams. That <laughs> it also gives so us the opportunity to make sure we stay somewhere else, Sean. That's right. Yeah, we'll, we'll take over yeah. all the hotels like they used yeah. to during the AMA days. And you can't yeah. get a hotel anywhere. It'll cost like a thousand bucks, you know? Well, that's why that's we call right. it a council. We didn't call it a group. We didn't call it a committee, you know, uh, action group, whatever you'll call it. We call it a council because we're there to just to give those guys a little bit of counsel if they want it. No, it's a good idea. It's productive, I think, to go to them with one voice. Yeah, it is. Yeah, is, because you can walk through the paddock and you, you corner one guy and he's having a bad day. He says, oh, this is shit. You don't need to be like this. Or did I go? That's not all right. That's like PG-13 or something. Anyway, so, you know, so you go to one guy and he says, it's crap. And then you go to the other guy. It's great. When you do this and this, we need to spend more money. And the other guy says, we don't have TV. And then the other guy says, my shock was wrong. And the other guy says, we need less tires. And the other guy says, we need more tires. And, you know, and then you get all confused. Well, well how is this thing supposed to work? And so it's way better if we have our little meeting and we go, look, this is the way we voted. These are the votes. It was a 50-50 split. You go, hey, you guys decide. We don't seem to really can't make up our minds. But if there's two to one, you know, like I think it was uh, eight teams versus four voted yes for World Superbike Parity and four teams voted no. And wow. I can even send you guys the results of who voted what. But, <laughs> and then if you go by rider entry, it was, uh, I think, 12 to six or something like that. Wow. That's pretty good. Um, yeah, so well, so all that Chuck Aston's got all that, and they can decide him and Teague and Wayne what they're going to do with the superbike rules, and hopefully they they go with what the majority wants, they go with what the minority wants, and you know that's that's their call, I guess. Yeah, and I mean you you talk about one voice, and for sure, uh, Richard, we'll wrap it up here and say yeah. we appreciate you yeah, no having your voice on today. I mean you. We can talk to you about a variety of subjects. And again, we appreciate your candor on, on everything. Um, 
and we know where your heart lies with with our series and uh we wish you luck not only next weekend at pit pit race but for the rest of the season um and uh you know getting where you want to be at the end of the year and, and certainly we'll all be watching at the port of Mao. that's going to be fantastic i mean you're representing everybody in our our paddock with that whole deal so uh, kudos to you for making that happen um and uh just real quick i want to say to richard i usually wrap up with a little something about um our series and i talked to david holly our, our chief marshal um just this morning in fact and he was saying that we are in need of um we're always in need of of corner marshals corner workers but we definitely need more for pittsburgh which is not this weekend but next weekend and I, as I always say, it's the best seat in the house. If you're a fan of racing, get, you get out there uh, beside the track. You sometimes get to put hands on a motorcycle if and in an unfortunate circumstance that a rider goes down. But uh, in that circumstance, it's an important factor that you guys are there to help out when you're corner workers and corner marshals with flags and recovering bikes. And there's great opportunities to be involved in that. And it's it's a great way to get involved in our series from a volunteer point uh, aspect and some Sometimes they're even paid positions depending on what they are. So absolutely get in touch with uh, D Holly at MotoAmerica.com and get involved. And if you're coming to pit race or weren't planning to, um, all those people from mid Ohio and, and the central Ohio area, get yourselves over there. I know a lot of you do, but, you know, help us out with the corner working stuff as well as, as spectating. And we'll see everybody next, uh, next weekend. And again, thanks Richard for being on. Yeah, no worries. One more thing. I just want to say thanks to the guy that brought Jake's bike back. They, they were very, very uh, helpful. You and know, there's no way it was only one guy. Uh, it was maybe was it a, two it guys. Was a guy it was, per section. Yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, yeah, it was a basket case for sure. It was a lot of parts, but they, we didn't have our dash and they went out and found it and brought it back later. So that saved us another thousand bucks or more. And wow. Yeah. So, and the dash was good been a nice trophy for someone and um so anyway i just want to say thanks to those guys for bringing all our bits back that hey richard that's a good testimonial for you um i wasn't even going to touch on the whole thing with corner because we usually have the riders comment on it but even from a team owner point of view like you yeah getting getting those expensive pieces back uh, where they you know for you is is critical so that's that's a great endorsement of the need for corner marshals and stuff so yeah, thank perfect you. yeah thanks a bunch guys all right guys okay. thank you very much Thank you. Later.